You're listening to teaching from Castle Hills Christian Church in San Antonio, Texas. More information about Castle Hills Christian Church is available at chccsa.com. I never like to hear. You want the good news or the bad news? I always assume when I hear this phrase that the person really only has bad news and they're scrambling to find something good. You know, you walk into your doctor's office and he's got test results and you want the good news or the bad news. There's never enough good news to outweigh the bad. You walk into a coworker's office, you want the good news or the bad news? How many of you when, you, when someone says that to you, you actually ask for the good news? Anyone here? No one? I have a few of you probably do, right? Because you're optimistic. You hope that there's some actual good news there, and you just want to lead with that. How about how many of you, like every time, just give me the bad news, right? That's me. Um, that's like my just gut response is, I want the bad news. Because even if there's good news I want to like process the bad news first. I want to hear it and internalize it and just feel all the badness of the bad news because I just assume that that's actually the bulk of the message. And I'm not alone in this. Uh, You ever asked yourself why there's so much negative news on TV and the Internet? I, I know that the reason it's there is because we're attracted to negative news. Like, it gets ratings, it gets clicks. You put a big, nasty, negative title on something, and everybody on Facebook's going to reshare it and like it without even reading the article because we're just drawn to negative news. There was actually some research that came out that three out of five people statistically are drawn to negative news. So we're in the majority, all of us pessimists, who want to click on the negative news and want to just put that into our lives. But is there an alternative? Is there an alternative to seeking out the bad news? I actually found out that there is an alternative to the bad news. There was a a news network that was created in 1997 called the Good News Network. And and what they found um, and what their intention was, um, was that there was a lot of positive things happening during the 90s. In the 90s, homicide rates in the U.S. plummeted by 42%. But television coverage of murders surged by 700% during the same time period. So murder rates were down, but coverage of murder went up. And so they said, we've got to do something different. Now, I don't know if this news network is any good. I've never bothered to look um, because I like bad news, like I already told you. But the reality is we would all benefit from some more good news in our life. There was a Harvard study by uh, Sean Acor, and it showed that when people watched three to four minutes of negative information news, 27% of the participants were likely to be depressed for the next six to eight hours of their day. Three to four minutes of negative news. On the flip side of that, those who watched positive, affirming stories reported having a good day 88% of the time. See, the type of news that we consume impacts us. People's moods were elevated for hours because they watched a few minutes of good news. And I think the world could use some good news. Now, I'm not talking about fantasy or escapism or ignoring real problems because you don't have to look very far in our world to find problems. But there's good news out there 
that we ignore. And so this morning we're going to be talking about good news. The word that's used to describe the first four books of the New Testament of the Bible actually literally means good news. When you say the gospel of Matthew, the word gospel means good news. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, their title is literally screaming at you, good news. We're going through this series called Engaging the Bible, and our hope is that as a church body, as a family, we will spend more time reading, studying, praying, meditating, talking about the Bible. And the reality is that when we engage in the Bible, it should have a positive, transformative effect on us. Because, as we stated throughout this series, the Bible is a unified story that points to Jesus. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell us about the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they show us the extent of God's love for us. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four biographies of Jesus, they're good news and hope for the world. And that's why we call them Gospels. So I want us to spend just a few moments talking about what these stories, what these biographies, what these first four books of the New Testament actually are. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three of them, are sometimes called the synoptic gospels, which means they can be seen together. If you were to compare them, to lay these three books, these three stories about Jesus side by side, 60% of their content with a few things in each one, 60% of their content is the exact same. It's just the same material shown from a slightly different perspective. John, however, is doing his own thing. 90% of what you read in the Gospel of John is a unique story or material. But even in the Gospel of John, as unique as it is, there's a lot of key overlaps between it and the other three Gospels. So you may be asking yourself, if there's four stories about Jesus, if there are four biographies, if three of them have almost the exact same content, and even the one that's really different still hits the same highlights, why four? Why four Gospels and not one Gospels? Maybe your approach would be to pick the best or the most detailed or the longest one or the one that has your favorite quotes in it and just reject the rest of them. And in history, there have been people who've attempted to approach the Gospels in this way. There was a guy named Marcion, and he was the first person to make a list called a canon, which a canon is a rule that determines what books go in and which ones are out. So which ones belong in Scripture and which ones are out. So Marcion was the first person to make a New Testament canon, a list of which books belonged in the Bible and which ones didn't. And Marcion, just as a rule, rejected most of the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures and influence on Christianity. He was not a big fan of that. He did not like the Old Testament portrayals of God. But he did really like the Apostle Paul. So Marcion's canon included letters from Paul and the Gospel of Luke. And you may be asking yourself, well, why Luke? Historically, Luke is associated with Paul. He was supposed to be a travel companion of Paul. And he liked the, the book of Acts because it's read together 
with Luke. But he only had an edited version, a smaller version of Luke. There were still some things in it that didn't quite make Marcion's cut. And the early Christian history, uh, they tried to uh, wrestle with this idea, should we just have one biography of Jesus that's the standard? And they said, no. There were also attempts in early Christian history to harmonize the biographies, to take all the stories about Jesus and to put them into one. One of the most um, daring attempts to do this was by a guy named Tatian. And he created around 160, um, created a harmonized version of the gospel called the Diatessaron, which means through the four. And what he did is he took, he created his own narrative story arc and fit the pieces from each of the gospels into it as best he could, harmonizing all of the pieces. But the early church rejected this as well, because the early church decided that they wanted to preserve the complexity and diversity of who Jesus was, what his life, death, and resurrection meant. In one of the Gospels, the Gospel of John, it actually says this, and I think this is a really important statement for understanding why we have four Gospels and not one. John chapter 21, verse 25. The Apostle John writes, now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that be written. In other words, there's so much stuff, there's so much more material, so many more things that Jesus said and did. If we just like kept a camera on him, reality show style, 24-7, and made transcripts of everything Jesus said and did that was actually really important. There wouldn't be enough books, enough libraries in the world to contain all of the amazing things he did, all the ways he touched people, all the impact of his life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us a picture, a more complex, a well-rounded picture together of who Jesus was because each of the four Gospels of the New Testament are written to different audiences with different concerns, and they have different purposes in their writing. So if you were to focus on a Gospel individually, you might notice that Jesus is portrayed with a slightly different impression in each one. In Matthew, Jesus is the Jewish expected Messiah. In Matthew, Jesus is the one who fulfills the Old Testament. He's the anointed one of God. In Mark, Jesus is described as the suffering servant, which is a theme from the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament. In Luke, Jesus is the king over the new covenant and kingdom. And this makes a lot of sense, especially when you realize that Luke and Acts were written together by the same author to give us not just who Jesus was, but what the Christian movement did when it started. In John, Jesus is the divine Son of God. John is an eyewitness and an apostle to Jesus, and so he has this message about who Jesus is as the divine Son of God. And you can see that all these themes are related, and they're interchangeable, and you find bits and pieces of each of them in each of the Gospels because they're all writing to us about the same person. Now, as a side note, it may be important for you to know that there were other biographies of Jesus, other stories about Jesus that floated around in the early church that didn't make it 
into our Bibles. And if I was going to stand up here and talk with you about all of the different ones and why they got in or out and which communities liked them and which ones didn't, we could spend hours doing that. We don't really have time to cover that today, but you might want to know that the four that made it into our New Testament were not the only stories about Jesus, but they were the ones that had the most wide acceptance in the early church and had the most deepest impact and usually have a connection or an association with one of Jesus' earliest followers, his apostles, his disciples. So how is it that these four biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these stories about Jesus, count as good news? I don't know about you, but I don't want someone dying being the pinnacle story of my good news. But if you've read the Gospels of Jesus, a lot of time is dedicated to his death. So how do these biographies of Jesus count as good news? You might want to know that the idea of good news was not original to Jesus and the early church. The idea of good news was actually a political idea that predated that. The Greek word for good news is euangelion. It looks like this. In Greek, when you look at it, uh, you can see almost in our English language where we get words like evangelist or evangelism. Because these are terms that come from this idea of euangelion. It was a political term. Alexander the Great would send out evangelists, people who would proclaim the good news of Alexander the Great. They would share his political values and the dominance of the Greek empire everywhere they went. They were evangelists of the good news of Alexander the Great. Next, the Roman Empire used the same sort of tactics. They had their own good news, their own gospel. The good news of Rome was that they kept the people at peace. Pax Romana. And the Roman emperors would manipulate people's emotions and desires. They would prey on their fears and socially engineer the masses. Here's an inscription about Caesar Augustus from 9 BC, just a, less than a decade before Jesus is born. And in this inscription, it's a calendar inscription talking about what Caesar Augustus was and what he had done for the Roman Empire. We're going to read this, not in the original language. There we go. <laughs> Since province, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things, since he, Caesar, by his appearance, exceeded our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors, and not even leaving posterity any hope of surpassing what he had done. And since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings, the euangelion, for the world that came by reason of him. See, Rome had good news. The Roman Empire's good news was that Caesar Augustus was born and that we should celebrate him. The emperor Caesar Augustus was a savior. He was a god. He would end war and bring peace to the world. When we read the New Testament, we need to realize 
that we're not reading a new story. What we're actually reading is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John intentionally using the same language to describe Jesus. They are intentionally taking the language that people would have naturally associated with the political powers of their day. And they're saying all this hope and trust that you're putting in this Roman Empire, into this person, Caesar Augustus, into these emperors who promise you peace, all of those things are not found in them. They're actually found in Jesus Christ. They provide an intentionally alternative good news. The New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are intentionally written in a way that subverts the Gospel of Rome and the good news of Caesar. The primary message of the New Testament Gospels is that Jesus was ushering in a new kingdom, a kingdom that was superior to Roman Empire. It was incompatible and incomparable with any human empire. In other words, God's kingdom was better and different than any of the kingdoms of the world. Anything that Rome could offer, it was better. The Roman Empire wanted its citizens to completely trust Pax Romana, the peace and stability brought by the Roman Empire. Believing their empire could protect them and improve their lives kept them as loyal citizens. And if we're really honest, our culture is not that much different. We have the same sort of trust and hopes today in our politicians and our political systems. They offer us peace and stability and an improved life. And sometimes we put our hope in them, in our jobs, in our family, in securities that we chase after. And when they promise these things, when our, our paychecks and our security and our homes and our government promises these things, they're asking us to trust and hope in them. But the New Testament tells us clearly that the hope of the world, the peace of the world, the good news of God is only available through Jesus because God's kingdom works differently. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news, the gospel. See, people tend to think differently about governments and empires and kingdoms than this. What we want is we want a perfect King, earthly kingdom, a government system that may have some spiritual implications on our life. But earthly kingdoms work with limited resources. They maintain control by violence and force. They always exclude and marginalize some people. Jesus offered instead a perfect spiritual kingdom with real life, physical, social, and political ramifications. The gospel tells us that Jesus is the Christ the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one the Hebrew prophets of the Old Testament long to see. And early in his ministry, Jesus walks into a synagogue in Nazareth. And this is what it says in Luke chapter 4 that he said. He gets up, he enrolls the scroll, and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then I love what Jesus does there. He rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant and sat down. Mic drop. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, today this scripture has been fulfilled 
in your hearing. You can see why Jesus had conflict with the religious and political power brokers of his day. Because he was telling them that God's kingdom worked differently than their earthly kingdoms. When we get near the end of the Gospels, we find that Jesus was ultimately crucified on a cross. In the ancient world, the cross was a form of Roman punishment designed to end rebellion. This happened because Jesus taught and lived out an alternative kingdom to the Roman Empire and the Jewish religious system. People were looking for an earthly kingdom with spiritual ramifications. But Jesus taught that the kingdom of God was spiritual, all-encompassing, with earthly ramifications. And then Jesus also, in his life, instructed his followers to invite God's imminent rule, God's kingdom, into their life. Many of you know the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer from Matthew chapter 6. There's a powerful phrase in there that I think we often misunderstand or overlook the significance of it. Matthew 6, verse 10, Jesus tells his followers to pray to God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's asking them to invite God, the king of heaven, into the world to rule in their place, to get his way, to let his will be done and not their own. I like to think of this as lived theology. As Christ followers, we're supposed to invite God to change us and to change the world around us, for God to get his way around us. Putting the Bible into practice and sharing it with others to help them do the same, that's our role in the kingdom. Putting the Bible into practice, living it out, taking it seriously, letting God actually be the king, in our lives, in the lives of those around us. And then sharing that good news in a way that helps others see that God is the Savior, that God is the King, that God is the one in control. That's our role in the kingdom. This year, we're asking you to engage in the Bible. And when we say engage in the Bible, we don't just mean read it. We mean let it change who you are and how you behave in the world. Near the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells his closest followers, Luke 24, 48, you are witnesses of these things. Witness is an interesting word. Someone who gives testimony, maybe in a court of law, willing to put their reputation and their life on the line, to share what has happened, what they've experienced for themselves. Jesus turns to his followers and says, you've seen some stuff, now you're going to talk about some stuff. And when we think about what it means to be followers of Jesus, when we think about what it means to actually engage in the Bible, when we think about what it means to live out our theological ideas, what God is calling us to be is to be reporters, evangelists of the good news, to see something happening in our life, the transformative nature of a relationship with God. We encounter who Jesus is, what Jesus did, what Jesus is continuing to do. We see the complexities, the fullness of what God is capable of, and we say, I am going to live as best I can that reality 
my life. I'm going to invite that into my world. I'm going to say, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Not my own, not what someone else wants for me, but what you want. I'm going to live this good news out. Disciples of Jesus share the good news, and they help other people live in response to this goodness. 